Our scripture today is from the first John chapter 2 verses 12 to 17. You can follow along in our bulletin if you want. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. We also have Bibles in the back. If you'd like a physical Bible, we have them. Because what the heck kind of church would we be if we didn't have Bibles? should stick to my notes. I think John was a yeller of a preacher. Remember, he was called a son of thunder by the disciples. He was also passionate and, and loving. He uses the word love very, very, very often, First John. And I think his people knew him well. They were familiar with his sermons about Jesus. Um, this particular passage, if you would like to study it in great, greater depth, I would read it alongside John chapters 13 through 17, where Jesus explains all these things. I think John, and specifically the church in Ephesus, but also the other churches in Turkey, had heard these sermons and so he's referring to them again, expecting them to be encouraged. He's being repetitive. He's being very specific about some things. He's remembrancing. This is a word Sinclair Ferguson used uh, in his book on preaching. That we're remembrancers. Actually, I actually don't remember if it's Sinclair Ferguson. I read a book on preaching last year, seems like four years ago, about remembrancing. And he's, the, the author is toying with the word to remind us of the gravity of what we do when we remind ourselves and our friends and those of people that we go to church with of the glorious truths of the gospel. It's one of the most profound things Christians do. It's a very regular part of what we do to our own heart and to one another. And that's what John is doing. I remember hearing um, a pastor years ago talk about being in a predominantly African-American church, and he was invited to preach, and preached, and 
was apparently pretty good. And then the preacher followed him and apparently said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And according to the preacher I listened to, he said that like a hundred times. And the room just filled with energy. People were excited because they realized all the truths embedded in that way of describing Easter, both literally and metaphorically, right? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I'm not that kind of a preacher. Some of you maybe wish that I were. I think John was. I think when John is so repetitive in these first few verses, this was not a a mantra. He's not speaking only to the young men in these churches. He was just moving around in his imagination, encouraging them. He's not only speaking to fathers. He's moving around generationally to encourage them. He's calling up what is in them. He's expecting that to ignite a fire in them that will then remind them to love one another and not what I would call overlove the world. He calls it loving the world. John's a pastor who knows his people. This uh, letter was probably written in about 70, 80, 85 AD. Was probably read first in Ephesus and then passed around to the other churches that are also referenced in the first few chapters of Revelation. It's not uh, necessary or essential that we understand who wrote John in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John in Revelation um, for various reasons, but I think it's pretty clear if you look at the grammar that it's the same writer writing for different purposes and different kinds of inspiration. Revelation is a vision that John had. These are letters designed to encourage, but even when I say letter, you're like, there's no greeting. There's no ending. The last verse says, watch out for idols, which we get here. I didn't bring the study Bible up with me, but the ESV study Bible explaining John's style is lovely. Do not expect a linear argument. John is anything but that. But he is symphonic. I'm not even positive what that means as it relates to a first century document, but it helped me love this book. John's a pastor who knows his people. He cares for them. He sent this sermonette. Maybe it's a little bit like an email without a subject. You know, think through the people you're going to read that email from. You're not going to read the one about your extended warranty that you either do do or do not have when there's no subject, right? But there are a lot of close friends. You wouldn't even notice there wasn't a subject. You would see who it's from, and you click on it. Maybe that's what John's letter's like. That's not in the study Bible. I made that up. Little children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. These are terms of affection. These are ter- and, and John's using them to ignite the fire that is, or to inf- uh, pour gasoline on the fire that is in these followers of Christ in Ephesus and around Turkey, what we now call Asia Minor, or what we now call Turkey, what was called Asia Minor then, that they might be encouraged. And what are they encouraged in? the gospel. You are forgiven for his name's sake. God doesn't forgive you out of pity. He doesn't forgive you even first because of how much you need it, and I need it, though that's true. We're forgiven for his glory. Be encouraged in the implied gospel here, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
reminding us that this God transcends time. He wasn't created through some chaotic explosion a million years ago. He doesn't need a match. Like a, he's not like a sun god who needs a moon god to match his deficiencies. This is the God who was from the beginning and was even before the beginning. You know the Father. In verse 13, because of the work of Jesus, your relationship with God is restored. What Paul calls being in Christ. John's alluding to it because these people have heard him preach on it enough that this little bit reminds them of the good news. Because you have overcome the evil one. How did you do that? By receiving Jesus' work. The gospel is first a thing received. Whether you prayed a specific prayer or the first time that you took communion or when you were baptized, if you were baptized as an adult, before that came God pursuing you in love. John's not talking about that specifically, but I have to remind you of that. So you're like, what does it mean that they've overcome the evil one? It means they trusted Jesus who defeated death. We receive that power by faith. You're strong. If you're like me, you don't always feel strong. And that's where it is one of the many lovely things about the scriptures. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if your allegiance is to him, you are strong, friends. I don't feel strong. So what some of you are thinking. Fair. John is expecting them to be encouraged because they're forgiven, because they've been restored to the Father who is from the beginning, because they have overcome the evil one through Christ, because they're strong, and because his word abides in them. Again, if you go through John chapters 13 through 17, the word abides, very important, especially in John chapter 15. I think John preached those sermons or the sermons accompanying that gospel to these people. And so they, anytime he would say the word abide, they would just be like, yes, that's our opportunity to remain with or remain under Christ until we go to be with him or he returns. One of the more profound words in the New Testament. And it's a received good. I write to you, young men. I'm going to tweak that a little in Greek. Um, Sometimes the, the pronouns are masculine, but it was for the church. Church, you're strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one through faith in him. If that doesn't encourage you, well, I'm not going to try and redo that part of the sermon. But I hope that it encourages you. Be encouraged in the gospel and let over-desires pass away. John is not an argument maker. He's also not a very pushy writer. There are ten imperatives in this sermonette. For contrast, there are 35 in 1 Peter, which is a very similarly linked letter. There are 55 in James. I think James was not a yeller. I think John was, but he was a yeller about love. I think James spoke kind of gently. 
but then said some of the most harsh things in the New Testament. <laughs> he says if you're wealthy, you should weep and howl, if you think I'm exaggerating. 55 commands in the book of James, which has five chapters like 1 John. 10 in the book of John. Only other books in the entire New Testament that have this few number of commands per phrase would be Hebrews, 2 Corinthians, and Acts. And 1 Corinthians has tons of them. Apparently they listened to him, so then in the next letter he didn't have to give as many commands. He just had to clarify some things. Most of the time, what the Bible does is teach, well, all of the time, teach about the promises of God, and then what does it look like to respond to those promises? John is no different, but he does it in a different style. His commands are sermonically intertwined with the rest of the text, whereas Paul is going to make an argument and then tell you what the implications of that are. Peter and James are a little bit easier to follow sentence to sentence, but also move all over the place differently. So John is saying, let your over-desires pass away. When John writes, don't love the world, if you take that as scientific language, as exclusive theological language, instead of sermonic language, then you're going to miss the point. Why? What's John 3.16? For God so... But we're not supposed to love the world. But if John was up here, you'd know exactly what he was getting at. Because I'm not styled like him, I use words to explain what he's getting at. Don't overlove the things of the world, which, by the way, give us a kind of pride. Um, translations are all over the map on pride of life. I actually like that a lot. Uh, pride of life as a translation in the English Standard Version, but the NIV translates it very differently, and it's because the word is arrogance of bios, so life in its fundamental sense. And what's getting at is when we overlove the things of the world, one of the net effects of that is then we're prideful about the things we've developed or done in the world. So it's, it's pride on top of overloves given into. Desire is good, over desire harms, right? All of us have a basic way of approaching, say, a car purchase. And all of us, if we watched a friend buy a certain kind of car, certain frequency, we might be troubled for them. We might wonder if that was wise. Cars a strange, depreciating, relatively necessary asset. Average American gets one every 11 years. How much we should spend on one, why? We understand this when it comes to things like this, I think. John uses the term flesh here as a metaphor. He's very into metaphor. And you guys know this. You watch certain kinds of television or films. You like certain kinds of books. You're comfortable with metaphors. What we, what we try to remember when approaching the scriptures, if we want to understand it, we want to accept the terms of the writer. So when John says, walk like Jesus, does he mean you're supposed to walk on water? No. He means it as a metaphor, right? When he talks about light and darkness, he's not talking exclusively about light so much as he's talking about it as a metaphor. Same thing with darkness. Is darkness always evil? Of course not. We need to sleep. Is light always good? No, sometimes it's too bright. But as a metaphor, the whole letter being about God is light, and in him there is no darkness. No, no darkness at all. 
and then the implications coming from that. So when he talks about flesh, very similar definition to John, uh, Paul in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the spirit, which is the new heart that we've been given if our faith is in Jesus, and then the flesh, which is every part of you that has not yet been sanctified or healed. We will have some flesh until we go to be with Jesus or he returns. I'm giving you des uh, definitions broadly to understand what John is getting at, and then it's up to you to apply them. The reason I say don't over, uh, don't over love the world is because Jesus obviously loved the world. He wept when he considered Jerusalem and how few of them put their faith in him. There is a good affection for the world that doesn't rely on it the way that the world would try and lead us to. I took pictures this morning of my soap because there are at least like 12 promises that my soap makes to me. I forgot to print off the picture or bring my phone up here. Um, it's rich in antioxidants. I didn't know that was important for soap. If you read the description, I mean, you should see the shampoo. If you read the description of the soap, you'd be led to believe that the soap is going to speak peace to your heart. It's going to calm and heal your old wounds. Not only is your skin going to be antioxidanted, but like, you, you know what I mean? The world is attempting to convince us that it has things within it, both uh, created and natural to the world, that can actually settle us, can actually give us purpose, are actually worthy of worship. And every good desire can turn into an, an idol. The word here is sometimes translated as idol and sometimes translated as uh, desire. So desire of the sarks, flesh, desires of the eyes, and then pride of life. That's the word epithumia in Greek. It's very important in the life of a Christian. We don't worship anything but God. And there are a lot of ways to think about, am I worshiping that? When you are not having a great day, just hear the messages as they roll through your mind. Friday, we had some kind of extended family drama that we weren't really part of, but we found out about. And what happens? Go eat something. Go drink something. Go read the soap thing and shower and use it. That'll fix everything. Go find a diversion. Buy some new shoes, or a new car, or a new pen. Is it just me? None of you know you have these things? That's the world attempting to convince you that these things that are things that are good are worthy of worship. And what we get to do as Christians is avoid the over-desires, worship Him alone, and then the interesting thing is then we enjoy those things. There's a good pride that comes with life, and then there's a bad pride built up by these things. I have a friend that's just wildly successful, and his, <laughs> I shouldn't even speculate because this is being live streamed, but like what his bonus is, but sometimes he'll call me when he gets his bonus because he's going to go buy like a nice bottle of wine, and he's going to spend like $60. And I'm like, that's kind of lovely probably buy his car, but, well, I shouldn't speculate, so I won't. But he's wildly successful, 
and he doesn't take wrong pride in it. He takes some pride in the good work that he's doing because his work is, is good. I have friends that have written books, and sometimes they don't tell anybody. And I'm like, you should tell, like, you don't have to be like, I wrote a book, everyone should read it. But you can be like, I wrote a book on that. I wrote a friend that just wrote a book on predestination. I'm kind of excited to read it. I know that makes me weird. There's a good pride that comes with that, and then there's a bad pride built on the things of the world that we have over-desired and then indulged in, and then they've built up things in us that need to be taken down. John wasn't very concerned with this, but I need to tell you, when you notice an idol in your life, you cannot simply remove it, friends. You must put, you must remove it, and then you must put something else in it. Or you'll find another idol, or it will come back. And what you put in it is the gospel. And I'm speaking metaphorically, and it's annoying, but this is what we do, Christians. When we realize that we have over-worshipped something, or no, we've worshipped something other than God, we've over-desired something and given into it, we take that out, we ask God's help, and we learn to remind ourselves of the gospel that we actually need in that place instead of that idol. I know this is metaphorical language. I know that for some of you it's challenging to, to do that applying in your mind, but the way that John writes the letter kind of forces that upon us. We have the opportunity to deal with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life because there is a life, that flir there is a flourishing life available when we do that work. While we abide. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Thank God. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Is the world going to be destroyed? No. John's speaking sermonically. In his other book, The Revelation, we learn that heaven eventually will collide with earth. So there has to be something here. But will the world look remarkably different when Jesus is fully physically present? Yes. Thank God. That's his point. When we read John, we want to accept his metaphors because he's asking us to, and we want to hear him. He's reminding you that it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. When Jesus returns, the world will look radically different. If you want the uh, much closer camera view of this, Ezekiel actually talks about the new heavens and new earth, uh, most specifically with respect to um, proximity. If you want the 10,000-foot version, the end of Isaiah actually talks about the new heavens and new earth. Really beautiful images that he gives. For our purposes, as we think about over-desires, they will be gone. And what they will be replaced with is what your true heart actually needs. Not everything you think you want right now, but everything the image of God in you and the new heart that Christ gave you needs. We get to abide. God is with us in all of it, and we will one day understand why it was like this and how God utilized everything we saw 
and everything that happens to us for his glory. But in the meantime, we remain under him. We abide. One of the ways that we receive strength to abide is through the Holy Spirit's power. One of the ways that we enjoy the Holy Spirit's power and sense it is in the sacrament of communion. Parents, if your uh, students are in Sunday school and they receive the sacrament, I'd like you to go get them now. None? Okay, that's fine. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll receive the sacrament, and um, we're going to do it a little bit differently than we've ever done it because of all the reasons. So I'm going to talk about the sacrament, and then we're going to have instructions that are a little bit different. So we have some new people here. We have some people that have been receiving the sacrament for four to five decades here. It's going to be a little different today. So pray, and then I'll explain. Father, we praise you for all of these kind terms with which John encouraged the men and women in this church. We praise you for all the promises of the gospel undergirding this whole letter and all of our lives. Holy Spirit, we do not often feel strong. We long to hear your words that we are strong and the word of God abides in us and we have overcome the evil one. We long to receive that first and then believe it and drink it in. Father, Son, and Spirit, as you encourage us in the sacrament, would you fill us with a knowledge of how you see us because of your Son, Jesus, and also with purpose? Would you help us to be grasped by your promises and truth that are not only ours because of Jesus, but also send us into your world as your emissaries? Amen.